On this week in Enterprise Tech, we have Mr. Brian G. And Mr. Curtis Franklin back on the show. And we, this week we have a fascinating segment from actually Brian's former students. We're going to talk about the EU's new cybersecurity game changer, the NIS 2 Directive, and how it's changing the landscape in Europe. Plus, later on, we have Jenna Pilata. She's SVP of product and user experience at Launch Darkly. We're going to dive into the latest DevOps and how it's revolutionizing user experiences. You definitely shouldn't miss it. Fly it on the set. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Twyatt. This Week in Enterprise Tech, episode 570, recorded November 17th, 2023. Well-placed friction. This episode of This Week in Enterprise Tech is brought to you by Miro, the online workspace for innovation where your team can dream, design, and build the future together from any location. Tap into a way to map processes, visualize content, run retrospectives, and keep all your documents and data in one place. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com slash podcast. And by Lookout. Whether on a device or in the cloud, your business data is always on the move. Minimize risk, increase visibility, and ensure compliance with Lookout's unified platform. Visit Lookout.com today. And by Nareva. It's a first. Nareva's new pro series, the HTL 310 for large rooms and the HTL 410 for extra large rooms, gives you uncompromised audio and systems that are incredibly simple to set up, manage, and deploy at scale. Learn more at Nareva.com slash twit. Welcome to Twyatt This Week in Enterprise Tech, the show that is dedicated to you, the enterprise professional, the IT pro, and that geek who just wants to know how this world's connected. I'm your host, Louis Moreski, your guide through the big world of the enterprise. But I can't guide you by myself. I need to bring in the professionals, starting with their very own Mr. Brian Chi. He's network expert, gadget expert. He's all around tech geek. Chibert, you're always busy. You're always doing <coughs> interesting, interesting stuff. What are you doing this week? I am working actually with a couple of my ex-students. Um, there has been a great amount of demand from our viewers asking for us to do deep dives into different types of technology. So Josh Cool, one of my students from the University of Hawaii, now works with Infoblox. We're going to go and cover the past, present, and future of domain name services and deep dive on that. So the first three Fridays in December is going to be a deep dive on DNS. It is a Le Grand experiment. Uh, you people asked for it, so spread the word. There should be a big surge in viewership. Hint, hint, hint. <laughs> but you guys asked, you guys and girls asked for it, so here you go. Thank you. I'm looking forward to that episode for sure. Thank you for doing it. Well, we also have to welcome back our very own Mr. Curtis Franklin. He's principal analyst at Amdia and man who has the pulse on the enterprise. Curtis, speaking of the pulse, we just had some breaking news. Yeah, things, you know, when we talk about things changing rapidly in the world of generative AI, we're usually talking about technology, but just had a personnel change. Sam Altman, the CEO uh, of OpenAI, and frankly, the person who has been, as much as anyone else, the face of generative AI for more than a year, is gone. Um, this is one where um, I don't normally cover the, those sorts of 
personnel moves, but I'm looking forward to talking to some of my colleagues to try to find out the story behind the story. Um, in the meantime, it's going to be um, interesting to see if this has any sort of material impact on the way that OpenAI uh, runs and introduces new products, whether it stays with its fairly frantic pace of introducing new products. Um, and it's a reminder that at the end of the day, uh, while we can all be dazzled by the technology, um, these are businesses. And uh, if you don't have a business case and business processes, you're not going to have the technology in front of the public very long. Indeed, indeed. Well, when it comes to material impact, we have a fascinating segment coming out. One of Brian's former students brings an exclusive insight into the EU's new cybersecurity game changer, the NIS2 Directive. We're going to discover how it's reshaping the digital landscape over there in Europe. And we're going to talk about how it can impact us over here as well. And later on, we're, you don't want to miss it because we have Jenna Belota. She's SVP of product and user experience at Launch Darkly. And we're going to dive into the latest of DevOps and how it's revolutionizing user experiences. So you definitely want to, don't want to miss it because we have lots more to talk about. But you know what? We have to go ahead and jump into this week's news blips. This week, we delve into another groundbreaking development in the world of cybersecurity. Seems to be more and more each week of these. A leading ransomware group known as AlphaV has adopted a tactic that's raising the eyebrows in the IT community. They reported a victim company, Meridian Link, to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. That's right. A hacker group is reporting to a government agency. Now, AlphaV's move came to light through a dark web post where they claim to have infiltrated Meridian Link's network Significantly, Alfie alleges that Meridian Link, a digital lending company, has not complied with the SEC's newly implemented rules on cybersecurity incident disclosure. Now, under these new rules, publicly trading companies must report security incidents with material impact within four business days. Now, Alfie contends that Meridian Link failed to disclose such an incident in the stipulated time frame. Now, this complaint was submitted online. The Alphi selecting, selecting material misstatement or omission in the company's fi filings option as the violation category. Interestingly, the new rule is not is yet to be enforced. Even if Meridian Link's breach is material, they might not be legally at fault currently. However, Alphi's action seems to exploit the general unease following the SEC's lawsuit against SolarWinds CISO, where the SEC allegedly the alleged misinformation about cybersecurity practices before a major attack. Marineland is not commented on the specifics of the breach, but confirmed encountering a cybersecurity incident. They assure that there's been minimal business interruption and no evidence of unauthorized access to the production platforms. In the broader context, Alfie, active since November 2021, has been noted to use and it, to use one of the Black Hat ransomware uh, developed in Rust, targeting both Win Windows and Linux systems. They've grown to be one of the most active ransomware groups, second only to Lockbit, with a focus outside the CAS region. Experts highlight that ransomware groups like Maze have previously threatened to report victims to regulators, but actually follow-through has been really rare. Alfie's recent move could signal a new phase of ransomware tactics, blending cybercrime with regulatory pressures. Think you have a handle on what criminal hacking groups look like and where they're based? Think again. According to an article on Dark Reading, a shadowy New Delhi-based group known as Appen 
no longer exists, at least in its original former branding. But for several years, starting around 2009, Appen's operatives brazenly and not always skillfully hacked into computers belonging to businesses and business executives, politicians, high-value individuals, as well as government and military officials on a global scale. Now, journalists at Reuters who investigated Appen's activities collected detailed information on its information on its operations and clients from multiple sources, including logs connected to an Appen site called My Commando. Appen clients would use this criminal commerce site to order services from what Reuters described as a menu of options for breaking into emails, phones, and computers of the targeted entities. Now, Appen activities included everything from the leakage of private emails that derailed a lucrative casino deal for a small Native American tribe in New York, to an intrusion involving a Zurich-based consultant attempting to bring the 2012 Soccer World Cup to Australia. In addition, there were numerous campaigns against government officials and political targets scattered around South Asia and around the world. Now, factors like rebranding, employee transitions, and the widespread dissemination of skills contribute to Appen being recognized as the pioneering hack for hire group in India. And the reach of the group was and remains amazingly broad. Sentinel-1's review of the Reuters data showed Appen often used a third-party outside contractor to acquire and manage the infrastructure it used in carrying out attacks on behalf of its customers. Appen executives used in-house programmers and the California-based freelance portal Elance, now called Upwork, to find programmers to code malware and exploits. Appen also sourced its toolkit from others, including those selling private spyware, stalkerware, and exploit services. In some cases, Appen even became a reseller for those products and services. Now, while Appen itself may be gone, its malicious children have spread far and wide. Many of the organization's former employees have gone on to create similar services that are currently operational and amazingly popular. All right. So first off, I am not endorsing this product. However, I recently saw a home improvement show where the electrical contractor added an electrical arc detection device in a renovated home. The gist is that an electrical arc is the harbinger of a full-on short that can cause a fire. While I'm not specifically endorsing the Ting brand, it was highlighted as a freebie for my homeowner insurance company to reduce the chance of a home fire. Like the vast majority of Americans, I live in a home that I didn't build and I have an unknown quality of electrical work. Tiny mistakes like poorly connected wires, two long wire tails sticking out from switches, plugs and such, During the inspection of my current home, the inspector found a set of wires just sticking up in the attic with loose wire nuts, the only protection from the live wire. If the electrical work was that careless, how good a job did they do on the other connections? Devices like these from Ting being sent to me free as part of my homeowner's coverage or industrial versions like those from Schneider Electric, uh, which is in the next slide, could potentially save a life by preventing a fire. 
The bottom line is humans make mistakes. And if that human is doing electrical work, that mistake could cost you your home. Electrical shorts often happen behind the walls or inside devices. And by the time the smoke detectors go off, you could have a full-blown house fire. So I'm deviating from the normal enterprise story in hopes our viewers consider getting proactive about electrical architecture in your home or office and maybe get a nice discount on your fire insurance. One last thing. I posted this on Nextdoor recently and have been deluged by some very um strongly worded comments that I believe are coming from electricians in the community. And they're all saying, this is worthless, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I'm sorry, guy. If you've had to go and have something short out in front of you that set a small fire in your garage or in your living room or something, you're going to live in fear of house fires just like I am. And the Ting device isn't that expensive. And Heck, my homeowner's insurance is giving me one for free, and you might want to go and check your homeowner's insurance. End rant. So what do you think the worst password of the year is? Well, ironically, the worst ones are also the most common ones. NordPass, a prominent name in the digital security industry, has released its list of the top 200 most common passwords of 2023. The top of the list... You guessed it with little surprise to many of us. It's one, two, three, four, five, six. And in a classic case of simplicity undermining security, the PIS password can be cracked in less than a second using basic brute force methods. Remarkably, last year's champion of common passwords is, of course, password. But it's now slipped to the seventh spot. This reflects a curious trend in password choices. People seem to be opting for convenience over security, even in the age where digital threats are escalating. Now, this list showcases a concerning reliance on easily guessable strings. For instance, variations of the sequential numbers like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, so on and so forth, dominate the lot all the way to the top 10. Even attempts are being slightly more complex, like A, a capital A, lowercase a, one, two, three, four, five, six, fall short in terms of security. On a more harmonious note, the password capitals unknown ranking 11th ironically takes about 11 minutes to brute force, which is significantly longer than most of the list. And let's not forget the interesting capital E Aliska 81, a peculiar entry in that number 40 spot used by over 75,000 people. One has to wonder about the story behind that one. Now, for those thinking of upgrading their password game, it's interesting to note that the password the world in your hand, all lowercase, is virtually uncrackable. That's right. Taking centuries to guess with brute force, yet it only ranks 173rd in the common usage patterns. Now, the report also highlights the ease of using password managers like 1Password or the native Keychain app for Apple users. Despite these tools offering secure and convenient solutions for managing credentials, we'll still find a staggering number of people clinging to overly simplistic passwords. Now, it's bit disheartening yet somewhat amusing to actually consider this despite all the advancements in technology and security that have been out there. And I'm hoping that next year's list are still not those repeat performances. What do you think, folks? It may be time to actually rethink that one, two, three, four, five password. Well, folks, next up, the bites. But before we get to the bites, we do have to thank a really great sponsor of this week, Enterprise Tech, and that's Miro. Working in the corporate world myself, I know bringing people together, making them productive is really the key to success in most teams. And that's where Miro shines. It's the online workspace for innovation. But 
What does that exactly mean? How can it actually help you? Well, Miro is one incredible visual place that brings all of your innovative work together, no matter where you're located. It's packed with the right things to be your dream products, home base. We're talking six whole compatibility bundles from product development workflows to content visualization. And it's powered by Miro AI. That means you're generating new ideas or summarizing complex information pretty much instantly. Now, Miro can work for any team, but product development teams really get the full experience. It offers teams the richest feature set of any visual workspace with specific tools to help the strategy or process mapping, facilitating tools to run effective design or agile sprints. Well, you get the picture. Miro connects super seamlessly to platforms you're already using like Jira, Confluence, Google, Asana. So you centralize work in a way that makes sense for your team. They don't need to leave Miro to update projects or statuses in any of those tools. You can do it all through Miro. It also ends up being a massive time saver. Miro users report saving up to 80 hours per year because they streamline conversations, they cut down on meetings, and see all the most up-to-date information all in one place. Miro also just released a board video recording featured called Talk Track to save even more time. We're talking about pre-recording your thoughts and leaving it on the board instead of scheduling the millionth meeting of the week. Go on, try it for yourself. Get your first three boards for free to start working better at Miro.com slash podcast. That's M-I-R-O dot com slash podcast. And we thank Miro for their support of This Week in Enterprise Tech. Well, folks, it's time for the bites. And this week, we turn our focus to the European Union's latest stride in cybersecurity. That's the NIS 2 directive. Now, I'm going to thank Brian here because his student brought this up and then he sent us the paper. And guess what? I had a little bit of a book report here. I got to read a nice long paper. And But I think the, the directive represents a significant overhaul of the EU's approach to cybersecurity, aiming to really elevate the common level of cyber resilience that we're seeing across a lot of the member states that are over there. Now, the original NIS directive was the EU's first legislation that was targeting cybersecurity. However, it's implemented and it was revealing, well, certain limitations, which prompted the need for more robust framework that they built here. Now, enter NIS 2, which came into force on January 16th. Now, member states have until October 17th till next year to actually transpose its measures into national law. Now, the directive is pretty ambitious. It's expanding its scope to obligate more entities and sectors to enhance cybersecurity measures. And this is a response to an increasing complexity and scale of those cyber incidents that we hear about every week, which poses a growing economic and social impact. Now, the directive sets out to increase cyber resilience, reduce inconsistencies and resilience across the internal market, and improve joint situational awareness and collective response capabilities. So we'll talk about a little bit about what, what those are in a moment. On a more notable aspect of it, it focuses on the cybersecurity of supply chains and information and communications technologies, especially relevant in the era of IoT. It also addresses the need for more stringent supervisory measures, stricter enforcement, and harmonized sanctions across the EU. Now, moreover, NIS2 removes the distinction between operators of essential services and digital service providers aiming for a more unified approach here. Now, the directive mandates entities to take adequate cybersecurity measures that emphasizes the importance of incident response, supply chain security, encryption, and vulnerability disclosure. So for me, this new directive marks a significant step forward 
in the EU's cybersecurity landscape. It addresses current challenges, a lot of things that are out there, and it attempts to anticipate some of the future ones that are coming out. It underscores the EU's commitment to safeguarding its digital environment against evolving cyber threats. Now, I want to bring my co-host back in because this is a very interesting move, and I think it can definitely apply to a lot of things we talk about. Chibana, I'll go to you first. Well, I'm going to read a comment I got very early this morning, uh, Florida time. And I got this from my student. His name is Claudio Bola. He's the group CISO at INEOS. His comment is, the EU NIS2 legislation is a good way forward. Let's say that it is somewhat generic and introduces undefined terms such as cyber hygiene and a big emphasis on third-party and supplier risk management without being clear on what we should do with it. I am hoping that the transcription into law by the various EU countries will remain homogenous, but that it will also add more details and definitions of some of the requirements. I personally think this is a fantastic step forward. Um, it, what, upon reading the documents, this is dramatically less ambiguous than what I first read in GDPR. Um, it's definitely a lot less ambiguous and things like, um, you know, Starbucks and so forth, which are a train wreck waiting to happen. If you, if you ask me, um, the reality is, is our Congress, our Congress critters need to have us as an industry deluge them with this text. They need to go and play catch up the United States who we, the United States literally invented the internet. Why are we so behind on security? So I would like to say to our industry, a challenge, embarrass the heck out of Congress, get them to get off their seating posterior <clears throat> and to actually do something because we as an industry need something. Otherwise, we're going to have serious, serious problems in the long run and we should not make ourselves such easy targets okay. and rant. Now I want to get Curtis's point of view on this as well, especially how it's going to impact the enterprise. But I also want to ask a very specific question. It's the fact around SMBs. Obviously the more these directives, especially in the EU kind of include more scope, include more entities, include more things to adapt their cybersecurity strategies you know, what do you, how do you think it's going to impact these small businesses? Do you think they're going to be able to, to adjust as quickly as they need to be to be able to follow these policies? Who, who would you like to answer that? You for sure. Me for sure. Yeah. Um, I think that small and mid-sized companies are going to have some trouble because, you know, the, um, the EU defines its jurisdiction as extending to any company that has a European citizen as a customer. And as we all know, there are lots and lots and lots of small U.S.-based companies that have European customers. I, I know of a number of people, you know, these are companies with two to six employees, and they probably do a total of... I don't know, twenty to a hundred thousand dollars a year in business with Europe, but unless I missed some specific carve outs, 
uh, they could very well end up having to comply with these dictates. Now, with that said, I think there are a couple of things that this shows in, in stark relief. One of them is that cyber issues are now seen as an issue on par with the most significant financial and um, health issues that a company can can face. So, you know, it's right up there with employee safety, financial issues, all of that. The second is that from an investor and customer standpoint, primarily investor, but also customer, transparency is the new order of the day. Um, one of my least favorite phrases is security through obscurity. Um, I think it's a, a, a lazy and generally crap kind of, uh, way to get security. And what this says is that if you're hoping to remain secure by simply not telling anyone that you've been compromised, that's not going to fly. Um, will there be unintended consequences to this? Absolutely. Uh, some of them are those companies that are sort of on the margins of uh, being affected. Uh, some of them may be this new type of extortion that we're seeing. Uh, we had the, uh, we covered it in one of the bites, um, where we talked about, I'm sorry, one of the blips where we talked about, um, a, a threat actor going to regulators saying, Oh, we know that this company has been compromised because we did it. Um, so there are things to be worked out, but I think that overall, this is absolutely a good direction to be going in for everyone concerned, for investors, for customers, and for the companies themselves, because it will force them to be more regular in how they treat security issues. Right. Yeah, I think the I do want to create some some help and some distinctions for this thing, because I think there's there's obviously the paper is pretty long. It talks about a lot of things like Cheaper said, it's pretty specific about some of the things it's talking about. But one thing it does call out is it says that it's distinction between operators of essential services and digital service providers and, and in order to balance compliance more. Can you guys maybe help me a little bit along of. What does that mean? What does that mean for this directive? How does how is it going to change things? Well, you want to take that? Yeah, I I think that this is in some ways a writing into regulation some of the concepts of what we call shared responsibility. Um, shared responsibility is something that any company that uses cloud services knows about. And basically, it's a way of disguising, you know, if you have an application that sits on the cloud, who's responsible for its security? And rather than saying that it's all a, you know, wibbly-wombly, cloudy-wowdy ball of stuff, 
it is instead fairly clearly defined where a particular responsibility begins and ends. If you are with a hosting service, for example, they would typically have responsibility for the metal itself and perhaps for the operating system. Above that, at the application, if you write the application, then you have responsibility for the application security. And if you're storing stuff on AWS or Google or Azure or some other place, then they have responsibility for the security of the platform while you have responsibility for the security of the data and why it's put there. It gets complicated, but it does define where the responsibilities lie. And I think that this is a useful piece of writing that into some regulation. Indeed, indeed it is. Uh, my, my last comment is, I told you so. We actually started talking about this probably a good three or four years ago. Yeah. Saying, hey, if we don't do it ourselves, someone's going to do legislation. And lo and behold, voila. There it is. There it is. Well, thank you, Chibert. Well, I think it does it for the bites. Next up, we have our guests. But before we get to our guests, we do have, I think, another great sponsor of this week in Enterprise Tech, and that's Lookout. Business has changed forever. You know, that's boundaries to where we work or even how we work have literally disappeared. That means your data is always on the move, whether you're in, on a device or in the cloud or you're across networks or even at the local coffee shop. Well, that's great for your workforce. It's challenging for IT security. Lookout helps you control your data and free your workforce. With Lookout, you'll gain complete visibility in all your data so you can minimize risk from external and internal threats plus ensure compliance. By seamlessly securing hybrid work, your organization doesn't have to sacrifice productivity or security. And Lookout makes IT security a lot simpler. Working with multiple point solutions and legacy tools in today's environment is just too complex. With its single unified platform, Lookout reduces IT complexity, giving you more time to focus on whatever else comes your way. Good data protection isn't a cage it's a springboard letting you and your organization bound toward a future of your making. Visit Lookout.com today to learn how to safeguard data, secure hybrid work, and reduce IT complexity. That's Lookout.com. And we thank Lookout for their support of this week in Enterprise Tech. Well, folks, it's my favorite part of the show. We have to get you a guest to drop some knowledge on the dry, right? Until we have Jenna Alada. She's SVP product and user experience of Launch Darkly. Welcome to the show, Jenna. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Now, Jenna, I, I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation because I am not a UX expert, but I, I respect it quite a bit, especially in engineering. Um, but I, before we get to that, you've had quite the career, especially in design, whether it's uh, places like Google, Dropbox, I saw many, many great places in that list. And our audience has a really big spectrum of experience, whether they're starting out or they're CTOs. Can you maybe take us through a journey through tech and where it brought you to uh, launch darkly? Sorry. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, I, I got started, um, in tech about 25 or six years ago. So 
really the blue is just covering up quite a lot of gray. Um, and uh, I, I, had, I went to school for, I got my master's degree in computer science, but on the HCI side. So it's kind of a blend of computer science and behavioral psychology and studying how humans respond to technology. Um, and yeah, so I did this really interesting um, thesis project in school around how people with brain injuries perceive different types of design and icons and typography. And I was trying to see if there was sort of a, a design approach to um, improving cognition for folks that have suffered a traumatic brain injury. So that was really interesting, you know, kind of blending the the behavioral psychology, science and people with disabilities kind of um, area. Then I sort of took a normal path through, um, started in a sort of usability consultancy. And then the dream job of all Google back in mid 2000s dropped on me and I packed all my stuff and I moved to San Francisco. And honestly, like I was a design director before I got to Google and it was the most humbling experience because I got there and just everybody was brilliant and everybody was like, we're changing the world. And I was like, I don't know how to text. So <laughs> uh, I landed in Google. I was like, oh, I've ruined my life. I'm not smart enough to be here. And then thankfully I stuck it out. And about three, three four months in, I was like, okay, I do belong here. Um, but I, I distinctly remember a phone call on the third day back to my parents. Like I've wrecked my life. <laughs> what have I done? Um, I was at Google for five years. I learned a lot about scale. Um, technology at scale, a lot of the kind of open source stuff that we use today, a lot of the developer tooling that we use today was built as homegrown in Google back in the day. So, you know, like Borg and all of these things. So um, I just kind of grew up with that. And I, um, at Google, especially in the mid 2000s, engineers ruled the world. Um, and if you weren't a designer or a product manager who knew how to communicate with engineers and, um, you know, translate different requirements and specs to engineers, then you were not successful at Google. So that's kind of like embedded in my DNA. Um, in the middle part of my career, I was an entrepreneur. I raised some money. I did the Silicon Valley thing, did that for a few years, um, made a product called Avocado, um, which was a sort of um, if Google Docs and WhatsApp got together and had a baby, but it was just for a family or a couple, like it was kind of a messenger and a to-do list. Um, stayed in the startup land for a while, worked with some buddies that created Chrome and um, we worked on some open source database stuff. And then the latter, latter arc of my career has been more in larger companies, helping them scale product and design practices and, and scale that quality out across you know, hundreds of, you know, designers or product managers, or even just a, a massive business unit that had like, you know, quite a lot of, of, um, footprint, if you will. So, um, you know, kind of thrown in the deep end at Google, built up my IC skills, middle of my career was all about entrepreneurship, tiny startups, making something from nothing, learning the business of things. Um, and then the latter half of, or the latter third of my career so far has been, really scaling up. So kind of how I ended up at Launch Darkly is kind of feels like coming home, like back to the developer as the user. Um, I love, you know, the, um, the, idiosyncr <laughs> the idiosyncrasies of like engineering types. And I love understanding how their brains work and what they're thinking about. But I also just want to bring some 
of my approach to building product, which is humanity back to developer tooling. I kind of want to open the aperture a bit and make it more accessible and make it more, um, make it a friendlier place to be. So that's kind of my, my mission and why I chose launch darkly. I love that a lot. I love that a lot. And like I have, a, like I said, I have a deep appreciation for UX design and because it can really make or break products as services, usage rates, productivity, you name it, especially in the world of DevOps. I live in that world each and every day. I, I want to get your advice on some things. I mean, it's an evolving landscape. Um, you know, what are some good general practices and principles that companies should do to help prioritize when they're developing software, building services, tools, that kind of thing to help align with the needs of their user and the expectations? Yeah, I think I think that's evolving. Um, I think that, you know, the sort of innovation in the DevOps space has been happening pretty rapidly over the last decade or so. And the approach at the beginning was, you know, engineers are a highly technical audience. They're a highly technical user. They read, they live in docs. They can figure things out. They want ultimate configurability. And I think this is part of what I want to change, but this is something that I'm starting to see change with some of the, you know, kind of like newer, more scrappier, smaller um, tools that are entering the landscape. So they have way better user experiences because, you know, what it turns out that engineers happen to also be human beings. <laughs> so we don't need to expect them to read the manual on every single tiny configuration change. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't need that power and that customizability and that configurability, but there's a way to scaffold that out that the first, you know, the, the most common experiences can be quite approachable. Um, really what we hear in our customer advisory boards and kind of just talking to customers all the time is like, you, you know, launch sharply, you created this category, which is like feature management as a SaaS product. And, you know, you have been working on this for 10 years. You know what the best practices are in releasing and operating software in production. Like, just tell us what to do. Like, help us be the best that we can be at feature management by putting those best practices in the product. And so I think the really big shift that I'm seeing in the DevOps space is the shift from being sort of unopinionated basket of configuration capabilities to really opinionated there are some things that you can do to prevent incidents, to kind of get consistency in your release processes. And those are going into the products. Like they are being set free from docs, wastelands and actually being codified directly into the products. And I like, I love that for this, for the, for the dev tooling, like the, the DevOps space. Now, since, since we've established that software engineers and service engineers are humans, <laughs> that's good. Um, I think that we should also figure out, um, and maybe give some advice to, you know, maybe how to bridge the gaps. Um, just general advice maybe is, you know, talking more around maybe key strategies to help, you know, enhance the connection between user experience and user experience and obviously development. Is there, there's, is there some good principles to follow there? Yeah. I mean, we have a set of product principles that we operate off of internally at LaunchDarkly. Um, you know, one of them is keep the trust jar full. You know, we kind of operate on a, a hierarchy of needs and trust is the first one. We always have to keep the trust jar full. There's ways that you can keep the trust jar full and there's big ways and little ways. The little ways are like, you don't really want to trust a product if there's a typo in it, right? Like you want to make sure you're paying attention to detail. It's, it's all of that stuff and it accumulates. But also, you don't ever want to hide anything. You don't ever want to occlude anything, especially as it approaches something that could be 
um, incident causing, right? So if you change or delete a tag that's attached to something in production, you know, you could cause an incident without actually knowing, you know, that it's going to cause an incident because it's kind of has downstream effects that you don't see right there. So there's things that you can do in the product to make sure that you're messaging at critical points of either, you know, severe risk or, uh, risk of uh, work deletion of some kind, data deletion of some kind. Um, and then there's there's generally other, there's a principle that we've been following for our latest launch, um, which is we are really taking a step and kind of getting way more opinionated about what we think people should do as the 80% case. And so we have this sort of, it's kind of cheeky, but we're calling it Lego kits, not Lego bricks. Um, so Launched darkly in the before times was a big basket of basic Legos, the six pin or the, you know, nine pin Legos that you can make anything you want. And people have made incredible things from the basic brick. However, it is also really fun to build the Death Star, right? With like custom pieces. And you, when you open the box, you see all the bags and they're all labeled one, two, three, you know, and, and you know where you're going, you know that you're heading to the Death Star. Um, so I think that that's, uh, and, the, and then the bridge between those two things, because engineers want both, um, is really just the blueprint of, of where you're headed and just the scaffoldings to say, um, you can kind of scaffold it, scaffold the additional complexity and additional con uh, configuration capabilities, um, after the 80%, after, you know, you show the blueprint, after you show that the map to the destination. So, right. um, yeah, so we try to, we try to operate that way. It's a kind of a big shift for us, but hopefully, hopefully other folks, um, follow, you know, follow our lead and, and create more opinionated, um, experiences in the dev tooling space. So let me ask you this, being more opinionated, does that help with, because obviously companies want to rapidly develop, they want to rapidly deploy a lot faster, but they still obviously want to have that other side of the seesaw, which is maintain really high user experiences, high quality. Mm -hmm. Do you think that having that opinion helps with that balance? I think it does. You know, it gets, um, it at LaunchDarkly, we start with the story. Uh, we start with the story of user value. So for instance, um, we've just released a migration um, flag manager, right? And there are all kinds of technology migrations. Um, they are risky. They are big. They are multi-year sometimes. The, the one I was part of at Gmail, um, we went from single home to dual home backend, um, took 18 months, I think, maybe two years. Um, but there's all kinds of smaller ones too. You're updating an API endpoint, you're updating your email provider, whatever. Um, these are things that people need to do, right? Like that if you're not modernizing your tech stack, you're probably not growing as a company. Like we, we consider like modernization a, a healthy sign of a healthy um, software development organization. And so, but you know, in the before times you could have done that with flags and setting up your variations and your cohorts and everything. And the difference now is you go to launch darkly and you see, create a technology migration and it sets up all the variations for you and it creates shadow mode and live mode all based on best practices. And it helps you set up your cohorts by risk profile and it monitors um, operational metrics like latency and errors. And we've introduced a consistency check if you're doing a database migration. So all of these things that people need, they were clobbering them together with different pieces of tooling in the develop in the, like in the DevOps landscape. Um, and, I don't know, like, I feel like that should be way easier to do. 
um, and less stressful and more guided. And if people really wanted to do a migration, not using our migration flag templates, they're certainly that, that, that capability still exists and launch darkly and you can set it up in your fully custom way if you want to. Very cool. Very cool. Well, we have lots more to talk about, and I'm sure my co-hosts want to jump back in as well. But before we do, we do have to thank another great sponsor of this week at Enterprise Tech, and that's Nareva. Nareva meaning room technology, audio technology has a history of really wowing IT pros. Duquesne University has 100 Nareva devices installed, and one of their senior technologists recently said, I can't say enough about how impressed I am. Audio has been my life's work for 30 years, and I'm amazed at what Nareva mic and speaker bar will do. Nareva has made another leap forward with the introduction of their Pro Series featuring the HDL 310 for large rooms and the HDL 410 for extra large rooms. For the first time, you can get Pro Audio performance and plug-and-play simplicity in the same system. Before the Nareva Pro Series, multi-component Pro AV systems were the only way to get Pro Audio performance in a large and extra large room. Nareva continues to amaze IT pros with the Pro Series. Their online demo highlights the Nareva audio ex- expert being heard clearly from under a table or behind a pillar or any other obstruction. It's pickup performance that many conventional systems can't match. Now let's talk coverage. The HDL 410 covers rooms up to 35 feet by 55 feet with just two mics and speaker bars. Imagine equipping an extra large meeting room or a lecture hall with two discrete wall-mounted devices. You can even use them individually in a divisible room. The HDL 410 also features a unified coverage map, which processes mic pickup from the two devices simultaneously to actually create a giant single mic array. The HDL 310 covers spaces up to 30 feet by 30 feet with just one mic and speaker bar. Nareva is all about simplicity. In fact, the HDL 310 actually takes 30 minutes to install and the 410 takes 60 minutes. Continuous auto calibration, Nareva audio automatically and continuously adapts to the changes in the room's acoustic profile. And with Nareva Council, their cloud-based device management platform, it takes the pain of the tasks like firmware updates, checking device status, changing settings, and a lot more. Bottom line with the Pro Series, Nareva makes it simple to quickly and cost-effectively equip more of your spaces with remote collaboration. Learn more at nareva.com slash twit. That's n-u-r-e-v-a dot com slash t-w-i-t. And we thank Nareva for their support of this week in Enterprise Tech. Well, folks, we've been talking with Jenna Balata, SVP product and user experience at Launch Darkly about user experience and DevOps tools. But I do want to bring my co-host back in because they have lots of talk about here as well. Who should we go first? Uh, Curtis? Why? Sure. Why not? Um, welcome. And it's it's wonderful hearing you talk about these issues around building, especially the user interface and and. Here I've got a question. Uh, as someone who studies user interfaces and, and how people relate to those, is the expectation of a user interface changing over time or is good design one of these eternal truths that works on every platform and in every age? Oh, that is such a complicated and good question. Um, there have certainly been products 
out in the world that were terribly designed that were wildly successful. I don't know if you used Uber in the very first time it was released, but holy moly, it was not great. Um, it just turned out that trying to get a cab in San Francisco was way worse. Um, so I think that it's not a fundamental truth. It's not always a, and, and I'm saying this as like a deep history of design career. It's not always table stakes. It, it really isn't. If you're creating something that didn't exist before, um, then, and, and it feel, fills a real pain, a real need, and design is not at the top of the list, but the thing works and it fills that need, then, you know, then design will come. I do think that um, customers, people, human beings, expectations are evolving way faster than the um, discipline of design and user experience are. So their expectations are being set by the world's best design products like Apple, you know, iPhone, all of these things. And it is not a luxury um, that companies can afford to have poor design when Apple is out there with the pace car. Um, and Apple does center design, right? It's They have the most beautifully designed hardware. I will reserve my judgments on this show about the software, which I feel quite different about, but um, the Apple hardware is, is the best in the world and people's expectations are being set by things like that. Well, one of the things that I'm I'm interested in, you you will of course be be really familiar with the idea of the friction of a transaction. In other words, how much grit the simple process of using something adds to the the delay in getting from where you are to what you want the result of the transaction to be. Mm -hmm. The area that I live in is security, mm -hmm. and there are people who seem to believe that secure applications require lots of user friction. Um, there, there are even security experts who talk about security theater, yeah. where you intentionally add unnecessary friction just to convince people that they're having a more secure experience. Um, yeah. Where do you come down on that? Uh, as you know, with your tools, do you still try to minimize the friction of the user experience apart from how secure it is? Do you, do you see a relationship there? There is a thousand percent a relationship there. And it's been kind of a, one of the tools in the toolkit of product folks and, and user experience folks. You can introduce friction. Um, around critical moments to increase the awareness of what action is taking place. So you can actually use it as a tool to make sure people are really paying attention. Because one of the things that we know and love about humans is that most of the time they're not really paying attention. Um, and no one reads what the copy is on the page, but you can introduce friction to heighten the awareness and create that attention signal that is necessary for critical action. So my bar, my personal bar is sort of like if it's going to cause um, the deletion of work. So I've set something up and then I lose it. Or if it's going to cause the deletion of data, um, permanent deletion of data, uh, that's also a place to introduce friction. 
And then in Launch Darkly's world, there are things that are higher and lower risk. So for instance, setting up permissions on your members, right? You have a brand new engineer, maybe they're just out of school. How do you want to talk about what they're able to do in production, right? Are they going to have full access over production? So I think, and so that process of assigning roles, making sure that the custom roles have the right permissions in the product, that's all stuff where friction feels healthy. Friction feels good. Friction increases the attention signal. The time to value of a product should be the lowest friction thing that exists in security software, in, you know, dev tooling and consumer software. People need to hit that value moment as soon as humanly possible because that's how they create connections with your product. That's how they stay sticky. That's how they spread your product in an organization. Um, and what's the point of using a product if you're not trying to get value from it? So I think, you know, it's it's kind of a balancing act, but I, I tend to leverage friction in user experience to heighten the attention signal. I like that. <clears throat> well, I've got one more question. This one is a little bit offbeat, but what the heck? I get to I get to ask these. Go for it. I have heard it said that no one who prefers to drive a straight shift car should be allowed to design a user interface for anything. <laughs> um, are, are there, are there any of these sort of non tech related things that, that you look for as a sign that perhaps someone has an attitude about what a good user experience is that could conflict with the expectations of a lot of people. I mean, whether it's uh, uh, using a, a vehicle with a clutch or uh, <laughs> deciding that they want to, uh, you know, use a fountain pen rather than a keyboard for personal correspondence. That, that is such an interesting question. I love it. Um, I'm, I'm definitely banking that one for later future interviews, but um I think the answer is no. Um, the reason why I love my job is that human beings are wild and wonderful creatures that are always surprising you. And I think that if 25 years into my career, if I wasn't still being surprised by the humans that I'm, you know, in service of, um, I would probably have bounced from my career a long time ago. Um, I, I love the weirdness of humanity and I love the messiness of it. And I want to be able to kind of create like an open door for the stick shift users and the fountain pen users and the, those mechanical keyboard engineers, you know, like, um, you know, we actually had a, a person interview at launch darkly and they brought their own mechanical engineers, <laughs> mechanical uh, keyboard to the interview. Um, but yes, I, I think software, the point of technology is to create access to information and to services into the world. And it shouldn't be exclusive of people who, you know, have questionable, uh, other questionable design choices in their lives. <laughs> I don't know. What, what do you think? <laughs> Actually, I'm going to take You're off. Gonna on okay. that a bit. So as a project engineer within the U S federal government, I had, an interesting array of people working for me. 
and I'd go and order different things being built. And DevOps was one of those things that was always a challenge because I had such a wide variety of personnel working on projects. And in my case, some of my people were spread literally across the globe. So what I've been looking for is a DevOps tool that'll help me get my people to stay in their lanes. <laughs> um, and I, it's sounding like Launch Darkly has some of these tools to help me at least get my people, I don't know, maybe marching in the same direction for lack of an analogy. Yeah, absolutely. Um that's one of the things that I think is like one of my personal quests at Launch Darkly, which is, you know, um, in larger organizations, especially federal government, um, you know, you name it, uh, engineers are really opinionated. And if they don't have a solution, <laughs> I see a lot of nodding. Um, if they don't have a solution that immediately solves a need, they all roll their own, they'll find another tool, and then you're getting into a patchwork situation, Right. And that those opinions fly high and the tools compete. And then there's this sort of weird land grab that happens in an organization. Then, then you end up with like 30, 40 DevOps tools that like are used by all the different teams or even just an ind individual engineer. Release processes suffer, consistency suffers, like quality goes down. So um, I do think that first and foremost, the tool has to be amazing. So that engineers say, this is better and easier than what I was doing, because it has to be quite obvious. And then within LaunchDarkly, we've created a bunch of guardrails, right? Again, going back to Lego kits, we've created those like sort of guardrails, those happy paths through the product that, um, that help with that consistency, that help with getting people on the literal same page. So we're really leaning into that release moment. So the moment that the change that's wrapped in a feature is expressed to your end customer, to your end device. Um, and releases are scary. Um, we want to make them not scary, but releases are scary because lots of things could go wrong. And if everybody's rolling their own thing and not doing the release checklist and not doing all the same processes, you could, you know, you're getting paged basically. Like you could wreck the release. So one of the things that we've launched recently is, is release pipelines. So sort of similar to code deployment pipelines, but more on the release moment of expressing the change in production. And those pipelines can be created by a release manager or a DevOps manager. And they have all of the sort of checklists by phase. And you can put um, audiences and environments in certain phases and you have to pass through all the phases in a specific order. And everybody in the organization um, has to follow the same release pipeline. And so you can attach all your governance and enforcement um, and your best practices on soak times, on approvals, on, you know, what has to happen before production um, goes live. And all of that's built right in, right into LaunchDarkly. So you can kind of take control of your release process. Actually, your uh, PR agent threw me some interesting text. Yeah. He calls it a kill switch for software code. And that sounds like a really cool tool, especially because things don't all get done at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. Releases are complicated. Um, so you can release one thing like a new feature or um, maybe a new homepage or something like that. And that might have four or five flags in it, right? You might have um, uh, 
you know, a video event and you might need to turn that off in certain locales if the video isn't available. And, but the kind of promise of feature management as a category is the ability to instantly remediate bad code. And there is never going to be a world. Well, maybe, I don't know. We'll see what happens with AI, right? But I, I will, I feel like for the foreseeable future, there's not going to be a world where bad code doesn't get written. It's just, it's just if you're not writing bad code, then you're not trying hard enough to create something new. Yeah, we're all um, human. <laughs> but the thing that um, the kill switch does is you can wrap some piece of code in a feature flag and without another deployment, you can kill it in production instantly. And you, and you can do that while you're doing your forensics to figure out what happened, right? And while you're remediating your code, um, and you don't have to do a new push. You don't have to do a new code deployment. So that, that is like, that's the foundational promise of feature management as a category. And sometimes people call it kill switches because, um, well, kill switches are great for even if you have a sophisticated code base and you want to introduce a third party library, for instance, you have no control over that library and they might introduce bugs. They might introduce critical errors. They might introduce, um, uh, vulnerabilities to your code base. And if that happens, you want to just get rid of it instantly. That's what feature management can do. Dennis, such a great show. Such a great segment. I have so many more questions. Unfortunately, we're running low on time. Thank you so much for being here. I did want to give you a chance to tell the folks at home, maybe they can find out more about launch darkly where they can get started, where they can start using tooling, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, you can find us at launchdarkly.com. We're pretty easy to find. Um, the website has all of our up-to-date uh, launches from three weeks ago around risk mitigation, around um, APM, like operational metrics uh, protections. We have some new experimentation goodies around funnel analysis, and we have a whole new mobile experience for managing your mobile app lifecycle. So each one of those can be found on launchdarkly.com. And I'll also say that um, we'll have a significant presence at reInvent next week. We'll have a booth. If y'all are there, stop by the booth, say hi. I'm easy to find. Um, and yeah, we love to talk about it. You can get your hands on the software at our booth at, at reInvent, and we can kind of show you some of the some of the magic that we believe in. Thank you again. Well, folks, you have done it again. You sat through another hour of the best thing enterprise and IT podcast in the universe. So definitely tune your podcatcher to Twide. I want to thank everyone who makes this show possible, especially to my amazing co-host, starting the very own Mr. Brian Chi Chibert. What's going on for you in the coming weeks? Where can people find you and get a hold of you? Uh, I'm, I've been up in 30 or 40 feet up in the air in a snorkel lift doing fiber optic stringing and getting rained on. <laughs> Anyway, if you if people want to hear more about the wacky things that I'm doing, I still use Twitter. I'm still kind of a dinosaur on that. Um, sadly, I also use Facebook. I'm not sure I want to admit to that. But um, your best way of ranting at me or su making suggestions for shows that you would like to see uh, is email. <clears throat> I'm Chebert, spelled C-H-E-E. B-E-R-T at twit.tv. You're also welcome to use Twiet at twit.tv and that'll hit all the hosts. 
And um, I will say it is from a email thread and actually some Twitter um, threads where we came up with the uh, first three shows, the first, well, first three weeks in December, we're going to be talking about DNS in some really, really gory detail. DNS past, present, and future. We're going to have a bunch of folks from Infoblox, some of my ex-students, talking about that and speculating where we might be able to go and make DNS a better place in the world. Thank you, Cheaper. I'd also thank our very own Mr. Curtis Franklin. Curtis, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find your work and what's going on for you the coming week? Well, for the coming week, they can um, find me sitting around either preparing for or recovering from a turkey coma. Um, And aside from that, I've got a couple of things that I have published, uh, getting ready to publish. My trends to watch for 2024 is out on uh, Omnia.com, as is my market tracker for my practice. Includes information on both the cybersecurity awareness training market and, for the first time, the cybersecurity professional training market. Uh, also looking at a number of different companies. I've got things that I'm looking forward to writing, actually. I'll show you what kind of a weird guy I am while I'm off for the next week. I'm hoping to get a couple of pieces written uh, so that I can think about them and not be busy doing other jobby kind of things while I'm uh, writing. Um, aside from that, just, you know, running, enjoying the cool, crisp mid seventies here in, uh, Orlando in the, the late fall and, uh, looking forward to meeting people who are part of the Twyatt riot, um, on Mastodon where I'm KG4 GWA at sdf.mastodon.com. Um, on Instagram, where I'm Kurt Franklin, uh, threads, the same thing. I have moved off of X pretty much onto threads. And, uh, at this point, I'm not regretting that switch, uh, or for most of my stuff, uh, best place to find me is on LinkedIn, uh, linkedin.com slash Curtis Franklin. Hope to find you someplace and, uh, see you next time here on Twyatt. Thank you, Curtis. Well, I also have to thank you as well. You're the person who drops in each and every week to watch and to listen to our show to get your enterprise goodness. I want to make it easy for you to watch and to listen and to catch up on your enterprise and IT news. You go to our show page right now, twit.tv slash twiet. There it is. You'll find all the amazing back episodes, the show notes, codes, information, guest information, of course. But of course, more importantly, there next to those videos, you'll get those helpful subscribe and download like support the show by getting your audio version or video version of your choice listen on any one of your application devices or any one of your podcast applications because we're on all of them podcast your apple podcast youtube you name it definitely subscribe and support the show and you can also support the show and the network by joining club twit but you know what it's it's, it's a great thing because it's a members only ad free podcast service with a bonus twit plus feed that you can't get anywhere else and it's only seven dollars a month and there's a lot of great things that come with it one of them is exclusive access to the members-only Discord server. You can chat with hosts, producers. There's lots of separate discussion channels. Plus, there's a really amazing special event. So definitely check it out. Lots of fun stuff there. Join Club Twit. Be part of that movement. Go to twit.tv slash Club Twit. It offers corporate group plans as well. That's right. It's 
It's a great way for give your entire team access to our ad-free tech podcast. And the plans start with five members at a discounted rate of $6 each per month. And you can add as many seats as you like there. And it's a really great way for your IT department, your developers, your support team, your tech teams to stay up to date with access to all of our podcasts. And it's just like regular memberships. They can join the Twit Discord server and get that Twit Plus bonus feed as well. Plus, get what get this. There's also family plans. Hey, share the share with the family. Share it over the holidays. Twelve dollars a month. You get two seats with that. Plus six dollars each per month. So you know what? Lots of great ways to take advantage of Club Twit. So definitely check it out. Twit.tv slash Club Twit. Now, after you subscribe, you can impress your family members, your coworkers, your friends with the gift of Twi, because we have a lot of fun on this show. We talk about a lot of fun tech topics, and I guarantee they will find it fun and interesting as well. So have them subscribe and support the show. I would love to have a chat. So definitely send me a message. I'm still on xx.com slash LuaMM. I'm also Louis Moresca on LinkedIn. I've tried threads. Sorry, Curtis. It's kind of dismal over there for me, but I will keep trying as much as I can. If you are interested in what I do during my normal work week at Microsoft, I'm developers.microsoft.com slash office, where I post all, we always post the lowest greatest ways for you to customize your office experience to make it more productive for you. And definitely if you're on Microsoft 365, check out that automate tab because we are really customizing and helping you customizing the way you have your experience in Excel, let you automate things, let you create scripts, let them run on the cloud, let them run in Power Automate, great workflows, orchestrations, lots of fun stuff. So definitely check that out and be part of that as well. I want to thank everyone who makes this show possible, especially to Leo and to Lisa. They continue to support this week at Enterprise Tech each and every week. We couldn't do the show without them. So thank you for all their support over the years. Of course, I want to thank all the engineers and staff at Twit. This cannot happen without them. Of course, thank you to Mr. Brian Chi as well. One more time, he's not only our co-host, but he's also our tireless producer as well. He does all the bookings and the playings for the show, and we really can do without him. So thank you, Chibert, for all your support. And thank you to the editor for today, because you know what? They're going to cut out all my mistakes after all this. So thank you so much for that, of course. And thank you to our TD today, Mr. Ant Pruitt. He's not only our TD, but he's also an amazing co-host and a host on one of the shows on Twi- or sorry, Twit called this week in Google. I had a really great time listening about that show this week. Uh, anything you want to plug this weekend? Uh, yeah, actually, go check out this week in Google. Uh, we had Mr. Alex Stamos on there. Um, people know him from the InfoSec world. He's such a great dude. Uh, really good episode with him. But also, I want to plug um, my hardhead got selected for an all-star game. And if you follow me on threads, I have a link there. The people that do the all-star game, they don't take tickets, um, ticket money when you get to the game. They ask that you bring backpacks. So you can get in for free, but they ask that you bring backpacks because they give them out to uh, foster children here in the Tri-County area. Or if you don't live in this area and you would just like to donate some money to them, it really does help them out. I put a link there in my thread. So shout out to the Trial County folks there. And that is all for me. Thank you. Well, until next time, I'm Louis Moresca just reminding you. If you want to know what's going on in the enterprise, just keep quiet. Hey there, Scott Wilkinson here. In case you hadn't heard, Home Theater Geeks is back. Each week, I bring you the latest audio video news tips and tricks to get the most out of your AV system, product reviews, and more. You can enjoy Home Theater Geeks only if you're a member of Club Twit, which costs 7 bucks a month. Or you can subscribe to Home Theater Geeks by itself for only $2.99 a month. 
I hope you'll join me for a weekly dose of home theater geekitude. Oh, 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 oh,